Hey everyone, Jason here. I am the My Climate Journey show host. Before we get going, I wanted to take a minute and tell you about the My Climate Journey, or MCJ as we call it, membership option. Membership came to be because there were a bunch of people that were listening to the show that weren't just looking for education, but they were longing for a peer group as well. So we set up a Slack community for those people that's now mushroomed into more than 1,300 members. There is an application to become a member. It's not an exclusive thing. There's four criteria we screen for. Determination to tackle the problem of climate change. Ambition to work on the most impactful solution areas. Optimism that we can make a dent and we're not wasting our time for trying. And a collaborative spirit. Beyond that, the more diversity, the better. There's a bunch of great things that have come out of that community, a number of founding teams that have met in there, a number of nonprofits that have been established, a bunch of hiring that's been done, a bunch of companies that have raised capital in there, a bunch of funds that have gotten limited partners or investors for their funds in there, as well as a bunch of events and programming by members and for members, and some open source projects that are getting actively worked on that hatched in there as well. At any rate, if you want to learn more, you can go to myclimatejourney.co, the website, and click the Become a Member tab at the top. Enjoy the show. Hello, everyone. This is Jason Jacobs, and welcome to My Climate Journey. This show follows my journey to interview a wide range of guests to better understand and make sense of the formidable problem of climate change and try to figure out how people like you and I can help. Today's guest on the Climate Career Series is Dr. Eliza Nemser, the founder of Climate Changemakers, which is a nonprofit that mobilizes political support for climate candidates and meaningful climate policies by transforming climate-concerned individuals into a community of climate changemakers. Now, Eliza has an interesting story in that she has her PhD in geological and earth sciences, and she was working with big oil to help them with fracking. But increasingly, she was concerned about the planet and really wrestled with that. And ultimately, she left to go find a way to put helping with climate change more front and center. That led her to the political realm, and she started convening people to raise money for climate candidates. And she consulted for the NRDC Action Fund and ultimately founded Climate Changemakers. Now, this episode is a great one because it covers what Eliza was feeling, how she went about the transition, the different twists and turns and steps she had along the way, the biggest levers that she's determined can have the biggest impact on bringing about the change that we need, some of the barriers that are holding back that change, and what they're doing at Climate Change Makers to help. Eliza, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jason. Thanks for coming. Yeah, it's been a while since we caught up, but you've been such a core part of the MCJ community for so long. Well, I mean, yeah, as soon as I learned about it, I don't even know, maybe it was Tommy Leap or someone, you know? The whole effort resonated so much, and I'm just so excited about what you're building. It's it's inspired me tremendously, so it's been really thrilling to watch the whole thing unfold. Well, right back at you, because you're doing some pretty inspiring things, and that's one of the reasons I asked you to come on the show, both to share with others, but honestly, we've never taken 
45 minutes or an hour before and done a deep dive on what you're up to with climate change makers. So selfishly, it's just a good excuse to learn more about it as well. Cool. I'm excited for the deep dive. Yeah. Well, uh, I mean, we could start one of two ways. We could either talk about climate change makers, but I'm kind of curious before we go down that path, how and when and why and where did you start caring about climate change? Where did that all come from? Yes. Okay. Well, to paint the picture, I grew up in New York City. So I'm a, I'm a city kid. And I had Even never... Even after what we just... We were just talking before we hit record about how nice it was for you to be out of civilization during the pandemic, yet you grew up in New York City? Right. So this is a tension. <laughs> <laughs> this is a tension I've lived with my whole life, right? So yes, 100%. I had never been hiking on a trail. I'd never slept in a tent. I'd never done any of that stuff until I was 16 years old. And I did a summer trip with a whole bunch of backpacking that totally changed my life. And I was already very interested in science, but I made the decision to be a, an earth scientist. Then when I was 16, went on to study geology and then get my PhD and do a postdoc. And I was very deep into earth science, literally all because of this eye-opening experience I had that summer. That's amazing. Because when I was 16, I wasn't making any types of decisions with conviction about any type of professional future whatsoever. My head couldn't have been in a in a more different place than that. So much respect to you and, and to your parents for instilling that in you somehow. My parents probably didn't know what the word geology meant at the time. <laughs> and we're just kind of like, we don't know what she's off doing, but hopefully she comes back. Yeah, I remember being about to climb Rainier and calling my mom for a pep talk. And she's like, I don't even really know what you're about to do, but just have fun and come back. So here's the thing. Yeah, I was always like, oh, yeah, I get it. Most people don't know what they're going to do. I'm not one of those people. I know exactly what I want to do. And I had this very clear picture. And I was going to be a basically a professor of geology, a researcher. And of course, that's not what I'm doing today. <laughs> so yeah, I ended up switching gears about four years ago. I was doing earthquake hazards research for a big engineering firm. My work had become increasingly about trying to mitigate the earthquake risk from fracking. Whereas I had started out working on natural earthquakes, I had kind of fallen into this really fascinating intellectually field of induced earthquake research. And more and more of my clients were oil and gas. So again, I, I found it intellectually stimulating, but I was uncomfortable basically helping them try to maximize profits, whereas I was getting more and more stressed out about climate change. So at some point, I just hit some limit on it. And I said, okay, the climate crisis is much scarier to me than earthquakes are. We had really bad wildfires in Northern California in I think it was October 2017. That was kind of my, that was my turning point. The air was terrible here. You know, I had little kids with asthma and I was just like, this is ridiculous. I can't, you know, commute across the bay to do this work, which, you know, my heart's not in it. So I started trying to figure out a way to work on climate. <laughs> and I know you've heard and, that. And were you, were you still employed <laughs> at the time or did, did you leave? No, I was still, you know, I stayed on as a kind of part-time employee for a while. And what I did was start I had a friend, an old friend from my childhood who I had reconnected with, and she started dragging me to political events. And I say dragging because it was just like, it wasn't something I would have done on my own. But she started introducing me to candidates. She was very involved in the 2018 midterms and trying to 
cultivate some first-time candidates. So I started attending events and ended up in conversations with candidates for the U.S. House about their ideas on climate and science-based policy and was really stimulated by those conversations and kind of my sense that there was a lot more work to be done to help connect first-time candidates who meant well on climate and science-based policy to the right subject matter experts so they could, you know, win on the issue, you know, speak eloquently, uh, you know, about their passion to, to move us forward on climate and then ultimately get elected and write and vote on legislation. Because I started paying closer and closer attention to the voting records of our members of Congress. This was kind of new territory for me, but I started piecing this puzzle together around that time. And when you were piecing it together, what did you find? And then what did you start training yourself to look for? The crazy thing I found is I found out about the League of Conservation Voters, LCV, maintains this scorecard, this environmental voting scorecard. And they track members of Congress on their votes and anything related to environmental legislation and confirmations. And the wild thing is that very few members, maybe none, get like a 50%. The vast majority of them get like a 90% and above, like a really good mark, or like a 13% or lower. I mean, it's this total bimodal distribution, right? And I just thought that was wild. Like, just that's wild, you know, and partisan politics aside, that's wild, you know, forget party affiliation. It's wild that, you know, we have half of our members of Congress who are voting robustly on environmental protections and half who are really (laughs) delaying progress at best, right? So all of a sudden realized how important elections were. Jason, I just was like, whoa, we need to get political. This is No, there's plenty of science to be done. And I'm sure plenty of important work on the policy side, which was kind of new to me at the time. But there's certainly a ton of work to do to just make sure we're electing the right people. So I realized I needed to find a way to get political. And then I started attending. There's some huge scientific conferences that I had always attended, like since I was an undergrad. But I started attending different sessions. Like rather than the kind of hard science, technical earthquake stuff, I started attending the sessions on on policy, on comms. And what I would see were just like a handful of scientists who were really comfortable, who were kind of gaining comfort in advocacy, pleading with a room full of scientists to do more, to advocate, to get involved. And everyone was kind of like, we get it, but how? And the subtext for me, when it wasn't, it wasn't explicitly stated, was we need to get involved advocating. We need to get involved in the politics here. And then the kind of response was like, yuck, politics are yucky. We're scientists, like A, who wants to get political? B, this shouldn't even be political. C, we're not even trained in this type of advocacy. You know, we're scientists. There's just a disconnect here. But yeah, we see what's going on. It's really bad. And we know that we collectively should do more. So I started thinking about, well, how do we take the yuck out of getting political in the name of climate action? Because that's what needs to happen. I mean, we need to get a lot more people involved in elections and in advocacy and in the political process. And there are all these people who are kind of ready to do it and don't see how that would work. 
and are just turned off. And when was this? Like what year, if you remember, or just ballpark? I think this was still about 2017. I think this was all happening about the same time. So I'm referring to the American Geophysical Union, the AGU conference. It's like tens of thousands of PhD earth and space scientists. And, you know, it's traditionally been held in San Francisco. There was a year it was, we were redoing the our convention center in San Francisco. There was a year it was in DC. There was a year it was, it was kind of hopping around. And this was the year it was in DC that really kind of got me. Yeah. So it was 2017 or 2018. And I just realized, okay, there's this new crop of candidates, you know, there's a really important midterm election. They mean well on climate. They don't necessarily know what they're talking about. <laughs> or, you know, they're not, they don't know enough to be compelling yet. They're on these really steep learning curves as first-time candidates, you know, trying their best to fundraise and win an election and get up to speed on a whole host of issues. You know, they're not PhD scientists. I happen to know a bunch of PhD, you know, I, and then there's all these scientists who are just, whoa, look, the data is getting scarier and scarier, you know. And then another big factor was. Trump, but also his appointment of Scott Pruitt to head up the EPA was another that kind of really got me. And of course, Wheeler took over, but just this taking the protection out of the environmental protection agents, I mean, that deeply got me. And I have to say that, you know, now with Reagan at the head of the EPA and Deb Holland, I mean, it's almost like, well, do I still need to do this stuff? But it turns out I still need to do this stuff. But yeah, no, I, it, it was the health piece was a really big piece. So about that time, I just started getting really interested in learning more about environmental health and, and the intersection between climate and air pollution and human health. And again, just realizing that to make a dent, I needed to figure out how to get political and how to help more people get political. Okay. And so when you came to that realization, what did you do? So I started organizing. I I didn't think of myself as an organizer. I, I started I started hosting what I called climate candidates and basically asking everyone I knew to come meet them and help support them in their election. And and everyone I knew came, or you know, like people kind of came. It turns out that a lot of people I know were concerned, were reading the news, were not happy with the state of affairs were eager to kind of do more. They realized it was an important election, even though, you know, historically people kind of ignored midterms or some people ignore, but they didn't know what to do. They wanted to be told something very specific to do and having someone that they trusted and liked give them something very specific to do, just come meet this candidate. It turns out that that resonated. So I started organizing events for candidates. And I moved to bigger and bigger venues. And I, you know, started with just folks I knew. And then all of a sudden, I knew new people, and they invited people. So I just really started growing a network of people who were eager to to support what I call climate candidates, right? But there's all kinds of reasons people get involved in politics. For me, it's always been trying to promote science based policy. And that's what I started doing. And then I learned about Give Green. (laughs) I actually I had been a long time member of the NRDC. But I didn't know that the NRDC had a sister organization called the NRDC Action Fund, which is kind of their political arm. But I didn't even know the whole, you know, nonprofit structure, how some orgs have a political arm. That was all kind of new to me. But I ended up connecting with those folks and getting involved with them and organizing using Give Green. Uh So what's Give Green? Give Green is it's a portal like ActBlue, 
you can send contributions to support a candidate directly through GiveGreen, just like ActBlue. GiveGreen doesn't take a cut. GiveGreen kind of stamps the money as climate concerned. So when I learned that this portal existed and here I am trying to rally support for climate candidates in all forms, not just financial support, but I'm trying to rally, you know, get out the vote support. Um, But certainly some piece of that is fundraising. And if we're sending money to support the candidates, let's stamp that money as climate concerned. It just made perfect sense to me that the goal is to build and demonstrate the political power of climate concern for generating support for candidates. Got it. And so you started organizing these events and you uncovered Give Green and the NRDC Action Fund. So now as this was starting to occur, were you still employed at that time or had you fully left? I don't remember exactly where that when that transition happened, but I was on it as a consultant for the engineering firm for some time. And I would just kind of help out a little bit with projects, but it was dwindling. And then the NRDC Action Fund hired me as a consultant to do the advocacy work and the organize. I mean, they, they were basically like, wow, will you advocate for our policy priorities when you have the opportunity? And I said, well, that's what I'm doing. <laughs> yes, with pleasure, because I'm basically, that's just formalizing what I'm already doing. It was a really exciting opportunity for me. And at that point, I, I moved on from the engineering firm and I realized that this was kind of now my career. So yeah, I, I should say that also the events that I held always had a climate theme. And they were often kind of climate, even billed as climate conversations. And the point of them was for everyone to come away knowing more things, both the supporters and the candidates and everyone. And I just wanted everyone to, you know, not only get together and support these candidates and realize that they plan to go bigger, bolder on climate than their opponent, which were largely incumbents who had done very little to help with progress, but also to to learn more. You know, so support the candidates, learn more while we're at it. Everyone goes home smarter was kind of my plan. So, yeah, I I had some great success with that. And I should also mention, Jason, because this is so important to my approach. And and this is also something that's really resonated for me with what you're doing at at MCJ. One of the things I realized, if we're going to take the yuck out of politics and if we're going to get political in the name of climate action, let's get that partisan stuff out of there. Like, stop that. I mean, we're all perpetuating this ridiculous narrative that it's a partisan issue. Every single time, you know, we invoke party affiliation, like, let's just cut it out with the language. You know, let's look at elections through a climate lens. Let's figure out all, we have all kinds of common ground to stand on. Let's stand on that. You know, and you've done a really good job of cultivating this really inclusive community at MCJ. And it was just exactly what I was trying to do. Like, I'm going to get political, but not partisan. Like, we're going to take the yuck out of it. I mean, so anyway, that's been really important for me this whole entire time in terms of bringing folks along on this journey and taking productive action together, which is really what I had started to do. But if you go back to that DLCV scoring that you mentioned where there's some candidates are super strong and some candidates are super weak, but there's not a lot in between. I mean, I would imagine, and correct me if I'm wrong, but that was broken down on party lines. Is that not correct? Heavily. I also don't see a ton of utility in beating that drum. 
it seems to me it is what it is. And we don't want the future to look like that. So by beating the drum over and over and being derogatory and punitive, we're not going to get where we need to go. Just, I just don't, I don't espouse the kind of hyper-partisan rhetoric and lens. I'm not going to, you know, the facts are the facts. It's just that I don't see the utility in talking about that with that framing. I see the utility in talking about elected officials who have made environmental protection a priority and thanking them and asking them to do more and identifying elected officials who have not made climate action a priority and asking them to do more and looking to replace them at the polls. So that's that's where I see utility. Again, like you're a climate champion or you're not. I don't care so much, you know, what letter you have next to your name. And I, I sure wish people cared a lot less because, you know, this is a big emergency. And to me, it should just truly transcend all the partisan stuff. You know, I, it feels like we're we're not helping out if we're if we're kind of underscoring, you know, where partisan affiliations fall on that bimodal distribution. Let's just call it what it is. We have half of our elected officials dragging their feet, whereas we have a majority of Americans, right? So we have, I think it was Ari Melber who coined this term, I think. People bipartisanship exists on climate. Politician bipartisanship, it's a different story. It's, you know, it has, it's taking some forms, as you know very well. It exists on some level, but it's nowhere near the people bipartisanship we have we obviously all want to breathe clean air. We all want our kids to breathe clean air and our neighbors. And, you know, it's just, and future generations, let's talk about that. Let's just elevate this as a priority across the board as best as we can without spending so much time in a punitive mindset. It'd be great to know a little better as you were going through this transition. At what point did MCJ come into the picture and how? And also, at what point did climate change makers? come into the picture and how, which we haven't even talked about yet in this discussion. <laughs> so I fell into the MCJ community. I started listening to the pod. Gosh, I don't even remember now how I, I met Tommy, but I'm pretty sure it was Tommy Leap who said, yeah, you've got to check out this pod. And I started listening and I was just really excited by, you know, it was just kind of a breath of fresh air. Like, let's learn together. Let's talk about it. You know, this idea that there is so much to learn. It's true. There's so much to learn. And I think it's really cool that you're doing all the learning out in public and bringing all these people along with you. I've also always been concerned, and now this is my bias as someone with a PhD. So in earth science, not climate science, right? So earthquake, like an adjacent field. Like I like to say, I went to grad school. We were in the same program. You know, I listened to their talks. Like I I like I by osmosis learned more about climate science in grad school than most people, right? Again, like I went to the talks and I but that was not my my specialty. But as someone who has this academic lens facing such a massive problem with so many people concerned about it, it's always been concerning to me that so many people think they need to be an expert to engage. Like that just seems like a problem. Like, oh no, I've got the stack of books I need to read about it and climate's daunting and climate's this. And I got all these podcasts and it's like, yikes, no, no, no. I'm gonna learn just enough. I remember, I think I said to, Cody made a joke that when I first met him, we, we had a random, we met through MCJ 
And he was telling me about his climate journey. And, and I think my response was like, awesome, do the journey, cap it at like three months and then figure your stuff out. <laughs> I think uh, it maybe didn't sound exactly like that, but you know, figure it out and do some, do a thing. Like don't like do a years long journey. We don't have that kind of time. Like I just, but so, you know, I was in, in your community, in the Slack and seeing all these amazing people looking around for big levers and learning a lot from them. But like, it didn't seem like there was a lot of attention to the big lever that is elections. And in particular, the big lever that was the upcoming 2020 elections. And I remember coming to you, I don't know, this was probably 2018, maybe early 19 and saying, hey, Jason, can I start a channel called Political Climate Action? And I think you were like, yeah, that's cool. And I was just like, let's talk about connecting the dots between political action and climate action, because I, I get it that that's not the whole point of this community, but surely there's a space for it. And you were gracious. And then, and then I remember coming back to you and being like, let's take this a step further. Can I do a series of conversations <laughs> to help folks in this community connect the dots between political action and climate action? And you were like, Sounds good. What would that look like? I don't know. Maybe you have a better memory in terms of when this all happened. But mostly I just remember if whenever anyone said like, hey, I want to do stuff to help the community move forward, then I pretty much didn't need to hear anymore. I would just say yes, because, I, I, you know, there's only so much any one person can do. And we knew that in order to have the kind of impact that we aspire to have, especially with a problem as big and as, as complicated as this one, that we we need all the help all the help we can get. So that I definitely have a default to yes mindset. It's not always yes, but it's a default to yes. Let me just say that now with climate change makers, I relate to that 100 million percent. Right. So, but at the time I was like, let's talk politics. I think first I hosted a panel and I basically just wanted to spotlight climate 501c4 work. Like I wanted to spotlight the folks doing the work and I wanted to showcase a kind of a, across a political spectrum. So I did, I had Tiernan Sittenfeld from LCV and I had Tamara Tolzo Laughlin from 350 Action. I had Kodiak, I think Hill Davis from the Niskanen Center, you know, which is right of center. You've done some great conversations with them. And it was kind of like, let's just talk about what climate C4 work looks like. You know, what, what is, I mean, because there's a lot of, and that was so exciting that folks in the MCJ community started coming to me and saying, well, I want to know more about what you're doing and how I do it. And that's when (laughs) we started having conversations about like, what does it look like to scale the organizing work that I'm doing? It was really prompted by that series. I mean, it was Cody Sims, it was Parker Thomas, Stu, Kristen, Winslet. I mean, what exactly are you doing and how do we do it? And so basically the MCJ community became a model. Like what's the political action version of the this look like? What if we really build communities specifically about around taking political action? And then we got this notion of what if we ask folks to spend an hour a week taking political action in the name of climate action? What if we take the partisan stuff out and, you know, really kind of crack open the door and build a big tent? And I'll say that the clean energy for Biden effort was spinning up around that time. Um, Audrey Lee was a friend of mine. I was really excited by what they were doing. It was very clear that they were just going to focus exclusively on the presidential election. And I was very much fixated on the, on the Senate elections because flipping the Senate to a pro-climate action majority, which we successfully did, was obviously such a key piece of the puzzle. 
And so I said, let's just do what they're doing, but organize for the climate candidates who are running for Senate. And that's was kind of the or, original incarnation of, of climate change makers. Nice. And when was that? And tell me about where you're at today and, and what's happened between then and now. That was in about August 2020. We lifted off a Slack community and put out the invitation, join us, spend an hour a week channeling your climate concern into productive action with us. We are not going to reinvent the wheel anywhere. We are going to partner with everyone. We are just another tool. We're kind of trying to harness climate concern human power and throw it there and amplify the work those folks are doing over there and throw it there and amplify the, the work those folks are doing. And again, it was initially just on the election side. And we also, you know, we're like, this is going to be community driven. This is kind of going to be an organizing platform. We're not going to even tell you which candidates to organize for. We'll give you some context. This is what the Senate landscape looks like. This is what the polls are telling us. Now go, like get a critical mass together, pick a candidate and just pick an hour a week that works. And so like, you know, we had Team Cal meeting at 4 p.m. on Thursdays. And, you know, we had Team Jamie Harrison meeting at 2 p.m. or whatever, 4 p.m. on Tuesdays and surrogate. We had just, and it just kept spinning up. Someone raised their hand to lead a team. We knew who the candidates were in the important races that were looked winnable. Of course, the polls were, in my opinion, misleading. Some of the races seemed a lot more winnable than they ultimately, than the margins ended up reflecting. But we just started building momentum and we never focused on really marketing the community. It was just kind of organic trickle growth. Bring a pal, bring a pal. You know, we're going to phone bank with these guys. We're going to write letters with these guys, you know, vote forward. We're going to text bank with next gen. We're going to do all the things and we're going to have options. So show up. And like, if you want to write letters, cool, do this. And if you want to make phone calls, cool, do this. And if you want to help raise money, let's do that. Using Give Green where possible. And yeah, people got fired up. People were fired up. And so we started to wonder, are people here for the elections or the climate? And it was kind of not entirely clear. And like, are there some folks who came for the politics and staying for the climate? And some folks came for the climate, staying for the politics. And I guess that's never been entirely clear. But what is clear is that we've tapped into really a new segment. I think one of the most exciting things is that seven, it's actually greater than 70% of the folks who enter the climate change makers community check a box saying they've never taken political action before. And I actually just revisited the website. I think it, it defaults to yes, I have taken political action before. So they actually have to take the time to go to the drop down menu and be like, actually, no, I have never taken political action. It's not just like sheer laziness. So that's really exciting. So now we've got like 560 folks in the Slack. Again, 70% of whom have never taken political action before, committed to this idea and showing up to take political action together for an hour a week, which is super exciting. So, of course, we all thought the elections were going to end in, in November, but they didn't. They dragged on until January. At some point, we had the entire community just like focus on the Georgia races, which was clearly a rallying cry across a lot of the country and actually the world. And after that, I mean, obviously we had some foresight, but after that we were like, all right, it's time to keep these folks engaged. Like this is a lot of climate concerned human power an hour a week. Like we could really make a big difference and there's plenty of work to do. We need to funnel the, the energy towards advocating for, for climate policy. So 
we developed this whole framework and we have been working with partner organizations because we are distinctly not a policy shop, right? We're not writing policy. We're not even saying, okay, these are the number one, you know, two and three and four policy priorities for 2021. There are plenty of orgs doing that work. We kind of exist to amplify their work. So we developed this monthly partnership model where we partner with an existing climate organization and say, cool, we're going to spend a month amplifying the policy priority that we kind of collectively decide on. So that's been really exciting. We spent February focused on electric vehicle incentives with Environment America. We spent March advocating for clean energy tax incentives with EDF Action. And we are just about to dig in on our April priority, which is kind of democracy reform in the name of climate action with a focus on the For the People Act, which is, of course, now S1 sitting in the Senate. And our partner is Represent Us. So we're really excited about that. Well, it's amazing. The groundswell, and it's so organic as well. I mean, 560 people is no joke. How do you know if your efforts are working? That's a good question. And one that we have been trying to, you know, understand in a lot of different ways. So one thing I'll say is that, and Cody says it eloquently, we are not just a Slack community that meets on Zoom once a week. There's a whole bunch more happening behind the scenes. And it is this ridiculously impressive, all volunteer, like superstar hand raiser situation. And we have this For instance, we have this team of data scientists who are phenomenal, who have built out this dashboard. Like it's, it's very impressive. And we have a whole series of key performance indicators and we collect a lot of data and we are monitoring the health of our, we're focused on, our focus to date has been community health, not growth. There's always been this notion that at some point we pivot from cultivating the health of the community that we have to thinking about how we decentralize and scale and to a focus on growth. But to date, It's been a focus on the engagement of folks in our community. So yeah, we we, we can measure impact that way. The other thing we have been doing is as part of our monthly cycle, once a month, we meet directly with a member of Congress and we have a climate conversation, which is, it's a direct advocacy opportunity. And we can, you know, just talk with a a member of Congress and, and hear about where they are and, you know, nudge them to go further and express our climate concern one of the things we do, one of the actions we take actually is to workshop personalized talking points to make us more effective advocates. Like, you know, Jason, the reason you care about EV incentives is different from the reason I care. So, you know, put that in your words, bring in your personal narrative, and that makes you a much more compelling advocate. So we kind of do that work over the course of the month, and then we have an opportunity to bring it to a member of Congress. And we've got really, we've gotten very exciting feedback so far. I'll say that there's a lot that we can measure numerically in terms of our quantitative impact. We also have a tremendous amount of qualitative impact, and we now have a recently anointed director of qualitative impact to try to make sense of all of this and and transform it into something more numerical. But a lot of that comes in the form of folks bringing their friends, folks bringing their entire wedding party. You know, it's like it's just kind of this relational organizing. But also the the comments, like kind of the testimonials we get from the members of Congress, like, you know, so excited you guys are doing this. This is, you know, we'll stay in touch. And this is the community I've been looking for. And it's just so exciting to see you all so engaged together. You know, so much of political influence happens outside the Capitol. And we need to hear from you. And we need to hear about your concern. 
So that's been very exciting, just trying to wrap our heads around how to how to make good sense of that. And then I will say that there's, there's a, a group, an outside group that we're talking seriously about partnering with as kind of using our community as a guinea pig to ask these questions. How do we know when communities like this are building power? How do we optimize that? How do we help build more power? So that's a really exciting collaboration we'll, we'll, we'll be able to bring in if that happens, which it's looking pretty good. A lot of outside expertise to to bring to bear on on those questions. Great. And, and you've come such a long way from the world of man-made earthquake monitoring for oil and gas clients to, to climate action at a pretty meaningful scale. Given that, I guess I have two questions. One is just, what's next for you on, on your journey? And, and then a follow-up is just looking backwards. What advice do you have for others that are maybe just setting out on the path that you did several years ago? Okay. Yes. The short answer is, is more of the same. So in December, the Yale Center for Climate Communications released a report. And they, you know, they they've kind of have this six Americas model. I'm sure you know about it. Like certain segment of Americans are alarmed about climate, the climate crisis and a certain percentage are concerned and some are dismissive. And there's this whole and they kind of monitor. So they found that amongst the Americans who are either concerned or alarmed about the climate crisis, 1% of them are currently engaged in political action around climate, whereas 29% of them probably would or definitely would participate in political action to advance progress on climate if someone they, I think it's the quotes are liked or respected, nudge them and brought them along, right? So that's 29 minus one, that's 28% of Americans who are just ready to do more. They're concerned enough, they're waiting for that person they like and respect to nudge them and do more. Now I feel like we have a full on mandate to just reach as many of that, you know, as many Americans that fall into that 28% as humanly possible. So Next steps for, for me and for climate change makers involve really like working to effectively decentralize and scale our model so we can reach more and more of those concerned and alarmed, you know, climate concerned people who, who are voters, presumably who want to become voters plus and give them something simple and concrete and productive and high impact to do with an hour a week and just really packages up. We're actually talking closely with the League of Conservation Voters about a potential partnership and even a potential deep collaboration where we could actually roll this offering out to their membership. So we have different ideas around what this might look like to scale it. But I think at this point, we've proven that there's, you know, we have a viable model here. An hour a week seems to be a sweet spot for people. There's a lot of climate concerned folks out there. And we know, you know, it's very clear what best practices are from, you know, grass tops and grassroots engagement in the advocacy space and on the electoral side. We know what we need to do. So it's about helping to connect more dot connecting, Jason, lots of connecting dots. So what's next for me is to try to figure out how this was not about more friends for Eliza. This was never about more friends for Eliza. This was kind of more Eliza's, like more folks kind of primed to connect the dots for people that they know. So that's the next step, kind of really the decentralizing and the handing off. Your question about advice. Yeah, and I think the advice is two-part now that I can ask it again after we just did this little segment. I think it's one-part advice for people that want to get more 
that want to take political action in climate. And then it's another one for people who might long to put some aspect of climate front and center the way you've put political action front and center, but may or may not be people who the political action lever is the one that they want to put all their weight behind. Yes. Okay. Bottom line is follow your gut. If your gut is telling you that we have a huge problem and you're not doing enough, do more and just figure out what it is. And I would say, Jason, your podcast is amazing and you should listen to Jason's podcast, but you also should not feel like you need to listen to another podcast before you do something. I mean, I'm very much like there's amazing books and there's amazing podcasts and these climate journeys, they need to be action oriented. I very, very much want folks to not be concerned that they need to do more to end up working on climate. And if it's not going to be your day job, there's so many volunteer opportunities. Climate Change Maker is one of them. One thing that we're trying to do is make it cool to reach out to your members of Congress. Like, do you call your members of Congress, Jason? I mean, I'm going to be honest. If I didn't have climate change makers holding me accountable and we're doing it together, I'm not sure I would do it. I liken it to lifting weights, right? Like I know I should do it. I definitely am not going to do it unless I have a friend who's like, we're meeting at 8 a.m. and we're lifting weights. And to me, calling my member of Congress, now I know there's a lot of folks who are actually like are regularly reaching out to their members, but I'm going to guess that there's a lot of people who aren't. We're trying to make it cool. Like we're trying to make it a team sport, like something we actually do together. Civic engagement in the name of climate action is definitely what we all need to be, what we all need to be taking part in, no matter how busy our lives are. We need to make that space to do it. So in terms of, you know, how to pitch in, I would say just follow your gut, follow your heart. You need to be doing something you're completely passionate about. If you're not doing something you're completely passionate about, I feel like figure out a way to roll that into your life. If it's not your paid job, it's going to be your volunteer work. But we all have a role to play, every single one of us. And then the other thing I would say is take all kinds of individual action, you know, and and watch your carbon footprint and do all those things. But at the same time, remember that this notion of a carbon footprint comes from BP, you know, and this was a a marketing strategy designed to deflect attention from what was really happening and kind of make it your fault, you know, make it my fault. We should all be mindful of our carbon footprint. Like we should do it. We should fly less. You know, we should be efficient. We should be mindful. And at the same time, let's not take our eye off the real prize, which is big structural change that we get it's government level change. So getting involved in politics and is, is an imperative. So for people that want to learn more about climate change makers specifically, what should they do? How do they find you? So yeah, this is always my call to action. Take action with someone, right? So climate change maker, if Sunrise is calling you, take action with Sunrise. Take action with 350. Take action with, represent us. Take action with any of these groups, Environment America, NRDC. I mean, there's so many important groups out there. If you haven't yet found your your home that really resonates, come take action with us at Climate Change Makers. The call to action is take action. Find your people and just get engaged. Make the commitment to, you know, alongside meditating or whatever else you've been pushing down on your list that's really important for self-care, make a commitment to taking action. If you want to take action with us, we would love 
more folks taking action with us, really excited about building the power of our community. And the way to do it is go to our website at climatechangemakers.org. And you'll see an invitation to our Slack. Right now we're taking action every Thursday. We just switched. Thursday is the new Sunday. It used to be Sundays, now it's Thursdays. Thursdays at 5 p.m. on the West Coast and 8 p.m. on the East Coast. We're together on Zoom taking action. So really there is so much power in collective real-time action. It's fun. It builds community. It builds accountability. I mean, you have a really an outsized impact when you take action together and bring more folks in. And we also have ways, you know, for folks to take action. We call them anytime actions more autonomously. But I also invite folks to join our Slack. It's a very robust, dynamic place to exchange support and ideas. And it's truly a a welcoming and inclusive space where there's a very explicit focus on the intersection of climate and politics, because there's so much space there. So yeah, I would say taking action with us, which you can also check out our Luma calendar. The best way to get there is through our website, climatechangemakers.org. And just, yeah, join us. I I feel like we have a lot of folks who take action with us and realize how, you know, truly productive it was and come back for more. And that's, that is a sign that we're doing something right. Is there anything I didn't ask you that I should have or any parting words for listeners? Hmm. You could have asked me, let's see. Now I feel like you've covered it, Jason. You've got this whole interviewing thing down. I should have asked you that before <laughs> you just went on that last monologue because that last monologue, you stuck the landing and then it would have just been a clean break, wrap up, wrap up the episode, put a bow on it, done. But then I have to come back around and say anything I didn't ask or any parting words when that, that was your parting words. You, yeah. you could have dropped the mic right then. <laughs> Um, no, I, I mean, we all have to step up, right? And so this is actually something very stressful about getting involved in elections. And I was just asking my husband, like, the people who have been in this a long time feel like each successive election is like that much more important and there's that much more on the line. Like, this is insanely stressful. And his best guess was, no, I think this is probably a now thing. I don't think it used to be the case that each election, like, now we're looking at the midterms, like so much on the line yet again, right? So I, this is just really at quite a intersection right here and right now of, you know, the impacts from climate change being so here and now and big and scary and so much opportunity to accomplish a ton in this window and then elections coming up that they're going to be so critical where things can kind of turn the wrong way again. So if there was ever a you know, good time to get involved in politics, it's right now. And I will, I guess, as my parting call to action, the For the People Act. It is sitting in the Senate. It is critically, critically important. You know, voter suppression has no place in America. And unless we can wrap our arms around some substantial democracy reform, And, you know, getting dark money out of politics and dealing with the crazy gerrymandering system, we're not going to make the progress we need need to make on climate. So this is a great moment to dive in. You know, whether you're concerned about racial justice, social justice, climate justice, just straight up decarbonization, whatever your concern, whatever your lens is, all of these pieces are critically important and they all converge in the For the People Act. 
really, really encourage anyone listening, if it hasn't already come to a vote in the Senate, by the time you're listening, pick up the phone and call your senators. Pick up the phone, get on Twitter and start making noise. Just make noise about the For the People Act. It, it is critically, critically important. And again, do it with us, do it with someone else, do it on your own, but make the noise. And we are actually having our first clubhouse conversation this Thursday during our hour of action. So 5 p.m. Pacific and 8 p.m. Eastern. And that is going to be a conversation about how democracy reform equals climate action. So excited to be doing a monthly conversation on Clubhouse as we kind of get our feet wet on that medium. Awesome. Would you wear your passion on your sleeve, Eliza? And it's so inspiring to see everything that you've accomplished and everything that I know you're going to accomplish from here. So thanks so much for all the important work you do. And thanks for making time out of your busy schedule to, to come on our show as well. Thank you, Jason. You've been, you have been truly a really, really important role model for me personally and for climate change makers. So thank you for the really important work you, you're doing as well. It's huge. Well, that's so nice of you to say. So I'm, I'm honored to have you as a collaboration partner and a friend. Me too. I'm glad we got to talk. <laughs> hey, everyone. Jason here. Thanks again for joining me on my climate journey. If you'd like to learn more about the journey, you can visit us at myclimatejourney.co. Note that is .co, not .com. Someday we'll get the .com, but right now, .co. You can also find me on Twitter at jjacobs22, where I would encourage you to share your feedback on the episode or suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear. And before I let you go, if you enjoyed the show, please share an episode with a friend or consider leaving a review on iTunes. The lawyers made me say that. Thank you. Thank you.